0: all of the notes in scripture there and we'll see what the Lord will do. Jackie.
1: Okay, let's read together. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all of the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all of their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance. And to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for any one, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Pray. Father, it is only grace Your grace and your mercy that leads us into the promised land. Even after, Father, we have been unfaithful. Mm -hmm. Because though we are unfaithful, you are faithful. You cannot deny yourself. So thank you for this picture of grace that you led your people into the land, Lord. And you taught them how to worship and how to walk in holiness. Father, we ask for your help. We have the the same need, Lord, we desire to drink deeply of your grace. And Lord, um, having tasted and seen that you are good, Lord, we want to worship you as you are due. So um, help us as we seek you this morning through your word to see you in all your glory and help us to praise you and worship you. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Jackie. So the wandering of our hearts is resolved in worship, and worship's at the center of this text today, and it should be at the center of our lives as people that follow Jesus, but it's just that truth that we have wandering hearts, right? We're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? But that is resolved for us and for Israel in worship. I just want to take a little bit of time at the beginning of the service to publicly confess that you should know this about me as an elder, a leader, and a human. I am at times a complete sucker, right? I mean, I fall for more marketing ploys than I would like to admit, and uh, God forbid I spend too much time on social media, and then I'm going to be convinced of all kinds of things. I just can't Avoid always looking for the next thing that will solve all of my problems, right? Whether that problem is dirty dishes, not a big enough kitchen, or a different car. A Prius is sexy, let me tell you. And I make it even better, right? But I will see like a clever video i've actually said this a couple times this week well i saw a meme and it said this and my wife is like you need to stop looking at memes and and she's right but i will see this clever video and it will say that this item that is being promoted would do this certain thing and then i just run after it right and they're often like silly things it's like supplements like hey fat guy you'll get thin if you just take this right and i'm all i hear that it's like they said my name right um, I do it with wallets, like I'm always trying to get the minimalist wallets, aluminum coated, sticks to your phone, holds 60 cards, right? And it's like, well, that's not minimalist at all. I do it bad. Do you guys notice? So I, and I change pulpits a lot too, right? We've talked about this before. And I actually am having someone make a new top for this preaching table that will be the the tabletop to rule them all. I buy jackets, I buy backpacks and bags, constantly changing. I hate it about myself, but there's something to it that I'm doing these things that are often harmless, but then I also find myself doing sinful things of putting trust in schemes or the elevation of self over others. And all of it, all of this experience reveals to me essentially just as a a heart that is yearning for satisfaction. For fulfillment, for a place of belonging, for a sense of home that can at times be misdirected toward the wrong things. And as I studied our text this week, I was keenly aware and frustrated with the things that are barbs in my eyes and thorns in my eyes my side, the distractions that lure me away from the solution, the real satisfaction that exists for us from real life and the purpose that Christ has called us to. And I think here in Numbers 33, the recounting of Israel's wanderings, the story of their 40 years with a warning before taking possession of the promise points us to the goal of israel's story and to the place that satisfaction is actually found so we're gonna have three points there's gonna be wandering warning and worship and joey just was waiting for wandering the word and he popped it up but this is the appropriate time now this is our first big idea the just the wandering we've talked about our study of numbers being like our journey with jesus through our own wilderness moments and we've been studying Israel and their forty years in the wilderness, going from slavery in Egypt to the existence in the promised land that the Lord promised to give them. And some of the wilderness moments match that sense of life that has been presented to us in the book of Ecclesiastes that many of us have been just finished reading in our reading through the Old Testament in a year. And that's a text where the teacher essentially says all these things about life and wisdom and says you should just enjoy life because it's a vapor that is passing and all, the whole book is summed up in where humanity is meant to put our trust. And it's Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or Evil, And so the whole wilderness journey has essentially been about learning this fact, the end of the matter, that we're to fear God, to worship him, follow his commandments. And this is exactly the wilderness journey for Israel. A people saved out of slavery, meant to dwell with and worship Yahweh alone. And he brought them out. He illuminated the way. He provided food. He gave them instructions for life. But much of their story is just simply a journey to him, to faithfulness to him, to trust in him, to worshiping him. One author says, Yahweh demands exclusive covenant loyalty as the one true God of heaven and earth. Yahweh cannot and will not tolerate the worship of any other God. And that's the question in our text today as they are on the verge of the promised land. He's essentially saying you can't worship anyone else or it will devastate you. And every story, every encounter, all of the correction along the way has been revealing that God is to be worshiped alone. And it's not like it's new to them when they first came out and the law was given to them in Exodus 20, right? God says and it starts the the decalogue the commandments with this i am the lord your god i'm yahweh your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery and the first commandments you shall have no other gods before me and that's the point for us for israel for their 40-year journey to learn that and to live in light of that truth that there are no other gods before him So they recount their journey. The Schrader family has a bit of a vacation ritual. It started as making fun of my mother who always asks this question of us, but she gets credit for it. But after we've been away somewhere or on a trip or experienced some adventurous thing, we look to each other and we say, what was your favorite part, right? And then we recount the things that we enjoyed or even the moments um, we think we will cherish for the long term. I'll remember that, you know. And it's also an opportunity for us to bemoan the less glamorous parts of our journey, being scared of heights or other things. It's usually at, at my expense that um, the bad parts of the journey happen. But that question of like, what was your favorite thing? It does something for us that it spurs on this retelling of our family story, or at least that stage of our family story. We're setting down markers that we can continue to look back upon and say, this is where we've been. And oh, remember that moment, both of the good and of the bad. And this is exactly what chapter 33 is for Israel. It starts with these words. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out from the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by a command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to the starting places. And if you have your paper bible open you can just see that almost the whole of chapter 33 is they left this place and then they camped at this place they left that place and then they camped at this place they just moved recounting their 40 years of wandering and All of it was on purpose. Like it wasn't like a random journey that the Lord is like, well, maybe they'll figure it out eventually and get to the right place. No, he's guiding them. He's showing them the way. All of their experience is meaningful. Some moments to be cherished, other moments that reveal an unfaithfulness of the people, but all of it reminding Israel of where they have been and where their hope is. Another scholar says the locations remind the Israelites of their faithlessness, the Lord's justice, and the Lord's mercy and faithfulness in bringing them to this point. The people of God must always remember who the Lord has shown himself to be in the past and then act in light of that in the present. So this concluding chapter that is essentially saying this is where we've been is then going to lead to this is where you're going to Be, and be reminded of how God has cared for you. Be reminded how he is to be the only one that you worship. Be reminded that he is present with you. It's not just Israel's story, is it? It's really a story of all of us. This is humanity's story. Our terrain, our journey, the destinations, the places we've camped may look different, but it is our story in all of our wanderings love in the new testament and often go back to it but when the apostle paul is before the elites in athens at the arena essentially where they discuss the things of the day and these are people who had found plenty of idols to worship they didn't even have essentially a context for who yahweh is they knew there is this group that may have followed after him and worshiped him but this is what paul says to those feel their way toward him, and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. The purpose of your existence, like we always do that, right? You ever ask your barista, like, what's the point of our existence? I did that once, and they said, are you ready for this? And I was like, yes, I'm ready. And she said we are the universe experience in itself and I swore at her no I didn't I I said that's fascinating but that's not true the point of our existence is that we would seek after God who is not actually far from us and that we'd find him and even Dave as he did our call to worship like seek God, while he might be found, like that's, a, that's the point of who we are, that we would seek after our creator because there's something in us that requires him. And when we look at this story of Israel, you have to understand that all of your wilderness experience is framed here your existence, that you should seek God, that you would feel your way toward him and find him. And Israel here is meant to be set apart as a people showing life with God, but they have to get to the place that they can see, that they can worship and trust in God alone. And their story is never different. It's always about seeking God, finding him and keeping him as the ultimate. It's a people that's always searching and in fact getting things twisted and often mostly missing what they're supposed to see. See it when Jesus interacts with some Jews. He says, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's the one that we're meant to be seeking, that is to be found. So we think of israel we think of our own lives and we just have to be honest that wandering is natural for israel for us the goal though is worship exclusive before god so i just want to encourage you wherever you are in your journey of the wilderness experience, you feel like you should have been super Christian by now. You've been in the church so long, but there's just things that st- like trip you up. Like trust the Lord and run back to Him. Because those wilderness moment things are there that you would seek after Him and find Him because He's not, in fact, far off. So don't despise the journey, but certainly. Beware of the obstacles. Because even on the verge of the promised land, there is a warning against missing what we are made for. And from recounting their wandering and the boundaries of their journey, we will arrive at the boundaries of the land that's going to be allotted to them as an inheritance in chapter 34. But at the central point of these two chapters is the Lord telling Israel what to do when they actually cross the Jordan into Canaan. And this is the warning. He says, when you possess the land, get rid of all the carved images and the metal idols, demolish all of the high places, everything and everywhere that would get in the way of wholehearted worship and trust in God should be destroyed. It's just their reality of the land that they're coming into. None of the nations that were there worshipped Yahweh. They looked to other gods for their success, for fruitful crops and planting seasons, and for victory in battle. And these idols of stone and ore often required of them, which is essentially a sexualized or exploitative worship at the expense of others, you pleased the God. sacrifice of children, sacrifice of other, prostitution, involved in temple worship. And all of it is just made up. These gods don't exist. And all of it is in opposition to the way of life that God has called Israel to. And this is not a new warning for them either. It's not like, oh, there's going to be idol worship now that you're going into Canaan, right? As we go back to Exodus again, and God is telling them of the land that he's going to bring them into, but he's centering on their worship and the importance of it. And he says, I will set your border from the Red Sea to the sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Some translations will say, because worship of their gods will be a snare to you. That's the risk. That's the warning that you're going to move off of worship of Yahweh alone and tank that experience with the worship of some lesser God, some carved image. He says, if idolatry is not driven out of the land, it will mean trouble for you. In, in our own text, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. It's just the truth that idolatry leads to ruin you have to know, I started writing a sermon that was essentially railing against people who want to bring back a theocratic existence and let's pull out the sword and kill the sinners and all the idolaters and things would be fun. But that wasn't where the spirit wanted us to go. Instead, this is not necessarily about warring physically with other nations that worship other gods, but this is about our hearts. And we give a lot of attention to the land in the study of the Old Testament, especially in the book of Numbers, so much so that I think we can miss that the land is just part of God's redemptive story. Because it's not the land that is in jeopardy, but it's their hearts. It's the soul of Israel that's in jeopardy. And every time that the people are enticed away from trusting in Yahweh exclusively or worshiping him alone, they miss his provision and they step outside of his care and trouble comes. John Calvin, old scholar, fifteen. Said, he called the human heart a factory of idols, and he had nothing better to say to the human mind. He said, man's mind is like a store of idolatry and superstition, so much so that if a man believes his own mind, it is certain that he will forsake God and forge some idol in his own brain. It's just a reality. We don't need carved images. Our heart and mind are pumping the th- these things out. Things to run after, to seek for satisfaction, where they can't actually provide it to us. And Israel is meant for wholehearted, full-bodied, untainted worship of God alone. One writer says the language of the curse was very foreboding, allowing the peoples of the land who were the source of idolatry to remain in the land would eventually lead to an infectious disease that would gradually consume the nation like leprosy. What lay ahead for the nation on this last stage of the journey on the victory march to the promised land was a challenge of faith. A challenge of who they would worship. And spoiler They would be taken by idolatry, and Israel will eventually be sent out of the land, just like our first parents were sent out of the garden as they tried to gain God's knowledge for themselves. But a people bent on twisting worship or even adding some other God to worship will eliminate relationship with that creator more than just a story and warning for Israel, I think it's here in our Bible that we would take notice and go to war against our own idolatry the earnest admonition given to the Israelites in this peculiar circumstance. They're about to come into the promise they've been longing for. It conveys a lesson for us to allow no lurking habits of sin to remain in us, that the spiritual enemy must be eradicated from our nature, otherwise it will be ruinous to our present peace and our future salvation. And it's sin that will earn for us what God planned for the wicked. We can't talk about idolatry without quoting Tim Keller, whose ministry um, just made strides in communicating the reality of the gospel in light of idolatry for us as humans. And he said, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. This is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And this is the story of our wandering and the danger of it. Just as for Israel and it, Keller's book, Reason for God, he talks about the particular kinds of brokenness and damage that are caused by idolatry. So I'm going to quote him at length here. If you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you if you center your life and identity on your family and children you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own and at worst you may abuse them when they displease you if you center your life and identity on your work and career you'll be a driven workaholic and a boring shallow person at worst you will lose family and friends and if your career goes poorly develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life if you center your life and identity on relationships and approval you'll be constantly overly hurt by criticism and this always losing friends you will hear confronting or you'll fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. And ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies because without them, you have no purpose. And if you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, become proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. So these things wrongly pursued keep us from what we are actually meant for. They rob us of peace, of purpose. And the person that we're supposed to find, the solution to our heart's longing. And the reality is that idolatry takes you out of the battles that you are supposed to be in, that God has determined for you to serve him in the midst of. And it's keeping you from the people you were called to be part of. We've been re-watching the Hobbit movies. as uh, you and I think somebody gave him all Lord of the Rings Hobbit movies, like 12 discs for his birthday. He's a huge Tolkien fan. How many? 30 discs. 30 discs. 12 is not. Three discs. each. Movie. And so we're watching and being reminded of the story of the Hobbit and specifically in the Battle of Five Armies, right? And many of you have read Tolkien or you've seen the movies at least, but Thorin Oakenshield is the dwarf king that has reclaimed the mountain. He's the king under the mountain once again, which is, happens to be full of gold. And he quickly, though, in that role and taking that place falls to what they call dragon fever. That it's all his and he doesn't want anybody to have it. And when the battle rages that he's supposed to participate in, he seems content in that moment to sacrifice his kin instead of entering the fray where he's supposed to be. He'll even go to the extent of harming those that are trying to break the hold that this treasure, this idol has on him. It's just a perfect picture of what idolatry does to us. It focuses us so much on it that we miss everything else we're supposed to care about. All the other purpose that God has called us to. Leading our family. Loving those around us, working for what we earn. But Thorne Oakenshield falls to this idolatry until he has, at least in the movie, I don't remember it being this dramatic in the book, but he has what seems to be a spiritual moment of reminder in the Great Hall. Surrounded by gold. He hears these voices of reminder calling him back to what is true and good to his purpose as the king. And from that moment, he enters the fight and everything changes. They win because he's killed the idol. The truth is, it's so much attempts to still our hearts, to rob us of exclusivity with Jesus. And it always starts in little things. But the solution. Is actually found in worship. I need a solution. Are you ready for it? Israel needs, and we, and they will need exactly what we and all of humanity needs. We need someone to crush idolatry for us and to remake our hearts to find life in God alone. And from hearts wicked and deceitful in Christ, we are given new hearts that find Him alone as our hope and hope isn't lost for israel in this moment we know how their story is going to unfold but if they will seek after god and find jesus they will experience his grace it's like the prophet ezekiel said from speaking for god i will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness this is to a people that has been removed from the land and put into exile And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is exactly what Jesus does for us. He sees us in our idolatry and he still gives himself to solve our sin. And he invites us to worship him, to see his glory raised with him in new life. And Israel is called to rid the land of idolatry in response to their rescue. And we likewise are empowered to put idolatry to death because our new hearts find satisfaction in Jesus. We need to know that even in the most desperate of moments when we have looked to idols for satisfaction, when we, in the depths of our soul, no, that is not going to be the answer. Jesus welcomes us back with loving, open arms in repentance as we say no to that thing and yes to him again. The truth is I can't come up with any strategy better for avoiding idolatry than stubbornly Returning to Jesus in worship as we turn from our idols. It's where we're reminded of the truth, of our identity, of our purpose. It's praying with consistency. Lord, rid me of the impulse to look to other things. Help me seek and find you, that you alone would be my treasure. It's relentlessly ridding our hearts of the things that try to take Jesus' place. We see the call throughout the New Testament. John, the apostle of love says, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Stay with what is true. Paul to the Colossian church says, "Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. here's, Here's the hope maybe for you. That's a letter to Christians. It's a letter to the church. Because you're not perfect yet. You're being made perfect in Christ more and more. But we will go to war with idols as we journey with Jesus through our own wilderness. Paul says it to the Corinthian church simply, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Somebody made comment on my running. She said, Are you going to run away, Pastor? And somebody said, He's running from his sin. We're called to run from our idols, and I want to do it more. Augustine said that in in relating our lives to God, he says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And truth be told, that's what we offer the world, isn't it? Rest. Satisfaction, fulfillment, the place of belonging, the place of home that they are meant for, relationship with their creator, real life in him, purpose for all of existence. And worship here is central to the warning in Numbers 33 because it's how we are meant to live before God, wholehearted for him. It's what Israel is invited into. It's the life that Jesus gives us, journeying with him to find him as are all. And we worship on our way, staring at the glory of Christ until we see it. And friends at Reservoir Church, we will not look anywhere else. The wandering of our hearts is resolved in worship. Just thinking applicationally, like what do we do with that truth? Just worship on your way out of idolatry. It's a new way of war. It's empowered by the Spirit, not with a sword, but cultivating a greater love for Christ. Seeing Him in His Word. Being reminded of Him in community. Singing of His grace for us. And then remind each other along the way. You are not meant to do any of this alone. The church, including every Christian within her, continues the record of God's faithful providence as he shepherds us by the hand of Christ to himself in eternal glory. We could write a book that says, This is the stages of the church in Southern California as they journey to worship of God alone. Oh, the places you have been, and oh, the places you will go. May our lives declare that we have found the one in whom we live and move and have our being and we will worship nothing else will you pray with me Lord we thank you for your word in this warning to Israel that is a warning for all of us that we would rid our existence of idolatry the things that attempt to take our hearts for themselves and um, leave us ruin lord for many of us we just come in repentance to you this morning just recognizing those things that we've looked to for satisfaction for fulfillment for identity even and we set them at your feet once again Lord, we just ask that by your spirit you would give us an increased sense of satisfaction in you alone. That there would be a noticeable difference because you have worked something in the hearts that you have made new. That we would know you, that we would love you, and that we would worship you alone. Help us to be a church that exemplifies that for the world that is watching around us. We have found the answer. We have found the cure for the restlessness of our souls and its rest in you. The one who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Be glorified in doing that work in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.